Welcome to the Josh Blair Ministry Podcast, a podcast all about bringing inspiration and encouragement to your daily walk with Jesus. We pray the message you hear impacts you as you follow Christ. I am uh, I'm excited we're kicking off a new series this morning, Living and Looking Like Jesus Through a Study of the Book of James. James is one of my most favorite books of the New Testament. It's so powerful. Uh, Some people, when they read the book of James, they say, well, it's pretty simplistic. It's just kind of cut and dry. But I think it's probably one of the most faith-challenging and faith-driving books in the New Testament. It's a powerful, powerful uh, book that that, uh, the Lord has given to us through His Word. And so we're going to be diving into that. This morning, I want to give you a quick history of it because I think it's important that we know where the book is coming from, who it was originally written to, because it is the Word of God. I know sometimes when I say history, people like automatically tune out, right? History wasn't my favorite high, uh, subject in high school. Maybe for you, it was for me. But history is important. We want to know how we got the Word, where it came from, why it makes sense that God would put it, and why it's lasted over 2,000 years and it's still relevant to us today. And so I want to just give you a quick rundown. We'll make it fast, but I do think it's important that the book of uh, the book of James also referred to as the letter of James maybe you've seen it as the epistle epistle just means letter uh, the letter of James it's less like a letter that we would find with Paul when Paul would write he would write to certain churches and sometimes we read James like that kind of letter but it's not really it's actually more like a Christian it's like a New Testament proverbs it's it's more like wisdom literature it's, it's, it's sayings and phrases, and, and he creates a structure there that he helps us say, like, this is what it's like to live practically as a follower of Jesus. It's, it's wisdom for us. This letter would have circulated from church to church to people to, to people groups all around as a way of saying, hey, if you want to be a good follower, this is what you should do. Here's some practical steps. So we don't read it necessarily as a letter straight through, but we do look at it as wisdom for us as believers. This book, uh, as uh, written, you know, there's, there's some scholars, when you start to look at scholarly work of biblical literature, everybody has an opinion. Everybody has a, a, a degree, and they all have an insight on how the letter should be structured. Even though it's written kind of like wise sayings, he does follow a structure, James, when he writes it. And so, they, although they differ, I'm going to go through a, the, a structure that looks at... Um, Four different basic movements in the letter of James, and we're going to break them all down. Obviously, not all today, because that would be way too much information. As we go through this series, we'll go through it and so that you can fully digest it and apply it to your life. But we're looking at the first movement, and really half of the first movement this morning, talking about trials, wisdom, and the Word. This is how James starts off the book, and that's where we will begin as well. But before we jump into the text, I want to point out where the book of James falls in what they call canonical context. All that means is where does the book, where is the book in the book of the Bible? What books come before it? What book comes after it? That's called canonical context. If you want to impress your friends later on, you can use that in a sentence. I don't know uh, how you would fit it in, but just try it. Okay, just throw it in there. You know what? You know what? The you know James speaking canonically. In, con- in context, you know, whatever you want to do. But I want to give you the canonical context of James because it does reveal something to us as believers. So if you know, if you already have the books of the Bible memorized, then you know that James comes after the book of... Oh, okay, good. Wow. I'm glad that we're going through this. Uh, 
I wouldn't have known it anyway. Uh, the book of James comes after Hebrews, right? And then it's before the book of Peter, First Peter, First Peter, yeah. So Hebrews, sorry, that, <laughs> I don't know if I'm trying to slip you up. I'm wrong. I don't know why I'm pausing. I don't know if I would have known that answer. So it goes Hebrews, then James, then First Peter. Why is the context of James important? Well, the New Testament, if you didn't know that, uh, after the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, it really just formulates the books are laid out by length. Not about when they were written, by how long they are. That You have Acts and you have Romans, you have the 1st, 2nd Corinthians. All of those are based on how long the book is. But, but God is so wonderful and marvelous about how he orders things that there is a purpose for how the books are even ordered. So Hebrews, if you know it, it talks about the superiority of Jesus. It says that Jesus is so superior, his blood is so superior that it, it's a new covenant. So we don't go back to the old covenant. There's no life in the old covenant. There's only life in the new covenant of Jesus. Hebrews, the whole book, talks about the superiority of Christ above everything else. He is our great high priest. And even, even in Hebrews it says, once you've tasted of the new covenant, to turn around and think there's stuff back in the old covenant that's going to save you, it's not going to save you. This is what Hebrews talks about, the championing, the, championing the, the superiority of Jesus. Then you jump over, James, you go to 1 Peter, and 1 Peter is a book all about enduring suffering, all about enduring the suffering of life, how to stick it out even when the world turns against you, even when people are trying to, to slander you and backbite you and gossip about you and destroy your life, how to endure suffering. That's what 1 Peter is all about. And between the superiority of Christ and enduring suffering, we find the book of James, which highlights how to live what we believe. Isn't it interesting that, that the way the Bible is laid out, it talks about to us, because Jesus is who Jesus is, you can live what you believe. And as you live what you believe, you will be able to endure the suffering of life. This is how it lays out. That's canonical context. So if you're taking notes, that's a good one. Highlight it. I thought that was pretty good. That's why I threw it in this morning. The Bible is the word of God to us to reveal the love of God for us. And I wanted to let you know that as we jump into this text this morning, we want to be a people who look like and live like Jesus. Would you say amen to that? Would you agree? So the question that we're trying to answer this morning is, how does this help us live like Jesus and look more like Jesus? How does the book of James help our walk with Jesus? That's what we're answering this morning as we jump into the text. Can we pray together? Let's close our eyes, bow our heads before the Lord. Lord, we love you. We thank you so much for your goodness, for your love, and for your mercy. We ask, Holy Spirit, that you would come and speak to our hearts. Those of us who need a fresh touch from you today, that you would pour it out over us. God, those of us who are straying away, that you would correct us so that we would draw our hearts back to you. God, that those who don't have a relationship with you, God, that you would speak to their hearts so that they would begin a relationship with the living God today. We love you. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. James chapter 1, looking at verse 1, he says who he is. James, the servant of God, Lord Jesus Christ, and the, to the twelve tribes and the dispersion 
meaning those who have been dispersed because of persecution within Jerusalem. He's writing to the Jewish believers who follow Jesus but who have fled persecution in Jerusalem and now are among several nations. The author of James, again, disputed because that's what people do in scholarly works with the Bible, but we believe that James is the half-brother of Jesus. Mary, his mother, Joseph, his father, obviously him and Jesus have different daddies, right? Because he is not sovereign too. He is not the living God. He is just a, a guy, but he also has the same mama who is Mary. Okay, so this is who James is. And if you remember James, he was initially the one who didn't really believe in Jesus. When they would come to Jesus, he says, hey, your mother and your brothers and sisters are outside. They want you. And he's like, all of these people are my brothers and sisters. And they're like, man, who do you think you are? But because he knew his brother and he followed him through his life and he saw what he did, he came to know Jesus as his own savior, his own brother, half-brother, now his Lord and King, and he surrenders his life to him. This is James, the one who is writing to us, the followers of Jesus. So his words have a bit more weight to them. But even if it wasn't that James, it's some other James, it still has authority because it's in the word of God written to us. Amen? But he starts off writing to these people who are fleeing persecution. And in verse 2, he, he just comes right out of the gates saying this, Count it all joy, my brothers, my sisters, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness or the ability to stand firm or the ability to be unwavering. Verse 4, And let your steadfastness find its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So we need to stop because James all of a sudden comes out like a heavy hitter telling these people who are fleeing persecution their lives are in danger, they've been threatened, they've been abused, their houses have been taken away from them, family members in prison, some even killed. And he says, hey, count it all joy. Aren't you so excited that your house was burned down? Aren't you happy that your loved one is in prison? He doesn't say, count it partially joy. He doesn't say, hey, find the silver lining in this storm cloud. No, he says, consider it all joy. All of it. All of it is good. All of it is beneficial. All of it is life-giving. How can he say that? Especially to these people who are running for their lives. They're now people who are in transition, trying to find a safe place to live. They're the persecuted, and he says, count it all joy. How can he say that? Luckily, he gives us the answer in verse 3. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, the ability to stand firm, and let that steadfastness have its full effect in you, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. How many of you have had something in your life that has tested your faith in God? Anybody? We all have. We all have. And remember, when James is writing this, he's not writing it to people who don't have relationship with Jesus. He is writing it to people who do have relationship with Jesus. People who have put their trust in God. Who have submitted their lives to God. Those who call themselves followers of Jesus. So he is telling them that, number one, trials are a part of the Christian faith. To be a Christian is to go through trials. If you're going to be a follower of Jesus, know that you're going to have hard times. You're going to have hardships. 
What's interesting about that is, even if you're not a follower of Jesus, that's what life does. But for some reason, we think because we are Christians, we are insulated from trials. But James is reminding us as believers, especially you, because you're not of this world, you will have trial. You will have trouble. You will have issues that rise up. To be a Christian is to face problems in life. A good deal of them are supposed to come actually from persecution because you don't look like, you don't act like, you don't sound like the rest of the world around you. And because of that, because you look differently, you sound differently, you live differently, you will be hated on. You will be turned against. You will be spoken rudely about and and people will backbite you, gossip about you, not like you, not invite you to their parties because you look different, you sound different, you are different. James is telling us that trials are a part of the Christian faith and when trials come, be thankful because they will solidify your faith in God. They will solidify your faith in God. How? Because as you stand firm in your relationship with God, all the other things that you depended on instead of God will be shaken and they will fall away, but God's faithfulness to you in your life will remain. We sang this morning that as Jesus, King of glory, comes, touches earth, it is shaken. And God was shaking us this morning. The way that we stand firm is that when we go, or we're going through trials, the things that we used to lean on for support now being shaken because not, it's not built on the foundation of God. The trials shake the ground and those things fade away and then we realize in the trial and the tribulation of life that the only firm foundation we have is God. This is how James is saying, because of the trial, your faith will be solidified in God if you will stand firm in Him. If you will stand firm on Christ our Savior. As you stand firm, you'll be made perfect and complete Lacking nothing. Another word for perfect and complete is wholeness. You will be made whole or you will be made holy. As you go through trials in life, if you stand firm in who Jesus is and you set your heart upon Christ and say, I don't care what happens to me, come hell or high water, I still choose to honor God and love Him and serve Him despite everything else breaking loose in my life, I believe that as I do that, He is making me holy. He's making me holy. Another way that James says this is, basically, trials have a way of making us holy if we stay faithful to God. How many of you know that this may not be an easy word for us to hear, especially in the U.S. where we love comfort and security so much? We want ease more than anything else. This is our society. The easier, the better. I mean, that's why Amazon is blown up. Because they do every, they'll ship your whole house to you. Free delivery. It's true. I looked it up. They have little tiny houses. I thought about buying one. It's free shipping. I said, like, how do they do this? It's incredible. We want ease. It's just whatever, it's simple. We love it. And that's good. I think that's awesome. But when it relates to our Christian faith, we cannot go with the same mindset. That Jesus, this is what I want. I put it, I'll go ahead and buy now, and you'll send it to me for free next day. And I get what I want. 
when I want it. That's not how it works with the Lord. That's not how it works in life, just with everything else, with relationships especially. Things just don't come easy to us overnight. But we want it. We want it that way. So when we hear that trials actually make us holy or help us be purified and walk with completeness or wholeness, we don't, we don't like that. We wish there would be another way. Even Jesus, when he was in the garden of Gethsemane, before he went to the cross, he said, Lord, take this cup from me. He knew that he was about to walk into some pain. I mean, pain, not just like a broken leg or a you know, hurt hip or something. I mean, like traumatic, body-ripping, open pain. And he said, God, if you would pass this cup from me, but not my will, your will be done. He knew that through the trial he would receive victory. He didn't run from it. He didn't try to escape it. He went after it head on when he knew it was God's will for his life. As followers of Jesus, sometimes we want holiness, but we don't want the hardship. We want to look like Jesus. We want to live like Jesus, but we don't want to have to go through what Jesus went through. But the Word of God, especially in the book of James, tells us that hardships produce holiness. Maybe you're saying, no, 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 Lord. But it's true. Remember, we're looking to the book of James to teach us what it means to look and live like Jesus. Can I remind you that Jesus was hated? Jesus was betrayed. Jesus was lied about. He was falsely accused. He was falsely imprisoned. He was beaten. He was threatened. With a, uh, threatened. His life was threatened. He was spit upon. He was whipped. He was mocked. He was crucified. He was murdered. Why do we think that we deserve any better as His followers? It puts life into perspective knowing what He went through to gain the victory and yet we stray away from any type of uncomfortability for fear that it might take us out of our zone of comfort. See, the good news, the gospel is not that we would have all rainbows and butterflies. That's not it at all. What if life isn't rainbows and butterflies? What if things aren't working out so perfectly? What if your kids are little hellions? What if your marriage is on the rocks? What if your finances are in shambles? What if your job is falling apart? What if all of these things happen? What if life is hard? Does that mean that God has abandoned you? Does that mean that you don't have the blessings of God because you're going through hardships? No, I would say to you, it means that God is preparing you for a next level of holiness in your life that you've not encountered before if you will stay firm with Him. That's what I believe. That's what I believe. If all hell is breaking loose in your life, get ready because God is getting ready to produce holiness in your life. Don't run from it. Don't try to escape it. Don't blame Him. The enemy is the one who tries to kill, steal, and destroy, but God can turn it all around if you'll stand firm on Him. It doesn't mean that God has abandoned you. I mean, God is walking with you.
It means that God is working in your life and He's making your life a testimony of His goodness. Because the gospel of Jesus is not that you'll live in a nice, comfortable life and nice, comfortable home here on earth, but it is that you will live for eternity with Him. That's the good news. Something you did not deserve, something you did not earn. He gave it to you freely and invites you to be a part of His kingdom. That's the good news. Not that you'll have a mansion here on earth, but that you'll have a mansion there in heaven with Him. That's the gospel. And it might be countercultural to the American dream, but it's far greater than anything that we could encounter here on earth. See, the gospel is you may not be free from pain today, but you will eventually be free from pain forever. You may not be free from tears and brokenness today, but you one day will be free from tears and brokenness forever. You may not be free from the sin that so easily entangles you today, but you will be free from the sin that that so easily entangles you forever with the King of Kings. That's the gospel that Jesus comes to bring. Life abundantly given to you. He comes to give it to you. See, the short-term pain fails in comparison to the long-term gain. Can I say it again? The short-term pain fails in comparison to the long-term gain. Does that mean that the pain isn't real? No, it's very real. Does it mean that it doesn't hurt? No, it really, it hurts. But even 80, 90 years of struggle fails in comparison to a life forever with Jesus in eternity. It's a small portion of a vast life if you'll stand firm. If you'll stand firm. Now we pray that it won't last forever. Obviously, God gives us grace and His mercy is new every morning to endure the things that life throws at us. But even if it lasts forever on this earth, it will not last forever in eternity. Hopefully that encourages somebody. The question is then, God, if I'm going through it, what do I do? If I'm going through trials, what am I supposed to do? It's a great question. I'm glad you asked it. James also has the answer for that one. Verse 5 says this, If any of you lacks wisdom, or another way of saying wisdom is understanding. If you lack wisdom or understanding, ask Him, ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. James is saying here, in the midst of your trial, you know, the trial of, why didn't I get that job that I thought you were giving me? Why Why am I having family strife? Why are people hating on me at work and school? When you're going through it all, ask God for the understanding about why it's happening and what you can learn or what you will gain from it. Usually that's, that's a hard question because we don't expect to be gaining anything through the trial. We just want to get through it as fast as possible. But could it be that God is speaking to you about something? That God is going to use this thing that the enemy is trying to destroy you with to actually catapult you into a new level in relationship with Him? Could it be that He's doing something like that? So the challenge for us, point number two, would be ask God for wisdom. 
God, give me wisdom in the middle of this. I don't blame you. I don't think you're causing it. But I know that you can make it good. You can do something in me. So help me see what good can come from this. Verse 6 says this, But let him ask in faith, speaking of us, let him or her ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He or she is a double-minded person, unstable in their ways. Can we talk about doubt for a second? We've all had doubts, haven't we? We've all had a lack of faith. The kind of doubt, though, that James is talking about here is, not the, is the kind of doubt that causes you to run from one, situ, one solution to another solution to find some way of escape rather than turning to God so that you can try to get yourself out of a trial that you're in. The idea is you're turning to God, but you're not getting the answer you want, so you run to something else to get, to get that answer. You run to somebody else to meet your need and trying to get you out of the, the trial or try to find help for the issue that you're in and you don't remain steadfast on God. That's the doubt that he's saying here. You're, you're running to God. God, oh, you're not answering me. Okay, God, I want this. Oh, but, oh, but he's not here, so I'm going to go to this issue. I'm going to go use this substance. I'm going to turn to this relationship. I'm going to run over here. And that's, that is showing you as a person running back and forth, tossed by the waves and the wind of life, and you have no steadfastness in you. That's why he says you're a double-minded person. You don't have faith that God will see you through it. So you run to everything and anything else to try to escape the trial that you're in. That's the doubt that he's talking about. Not the doubt like, God, I don't know why I'm going through this. This is a situation. But God, I, I don't know. I, I hope that you'll answer. I don't know. But God, I, I believe, but I, I struggle. That's not the doubt that he's talking about. He's talking about when you say, God, do it. Ah, you don't do it. You're not going to do it. Uh, this, this over here, this will help me. This person over here will help me. I'm, I'm going to run somewhere else because God just ain't cutting it. That's the doubt he talks about. And that person is someone who is like a wave being bounced around from here or there looking for some relief. It doesn't demonstrate faith in God. It demonstrates your desire for comfort. It demonstrates your want of ease. Forgetting that trials of various kinds produce holiness so we can count them all as joyful. All of them produce joy. This running back and forth like a pinball machine is what James calls double-minded people. Not set on God, but looking for whatever and whoever to relieve their pain. But a faithful person is steadfast no matter what hell breaks loose in their life, their eyes are fixed on Jesus because He is the only hope that we have to make it through. Do you believe that this morning? That Jesus is the only hope you have. He is the only hope. Those friends are not going to help you. That substance is not going to deliver you. That relationship that's toxic is not going to help you find the relief that you need. It will not. It cannot. Only Jesus is the firm foundation that your life can be built upon. Only Jesus. Everything else that can be shaken 
will be shaken through the trial of life. That's why James actually, he praises the lowly brother or the poor brother or sister in verse 9. And then he warns the wealthy brother and sister in verse 10. Why does he do that? Because the poor person doesn't have a whole lot of options when it comes to getting out of the trials of life. Money isn't going to buy their way out of the trial because they don't got it. I can't turn to money because what money? He actually, James says, you're blessed because you only have one option. You can't put your trust in something else. You can only put your trust in God. So he tells the poor person, rejoice in your exaltation, meaning rejoice the fact that you only have one direction to look. And then he warns those who are wealthy. And can I remind you, if you're an American, you are 95% more wealthy than the rest of the world. So be mindful. Don't look down on those who have wealth because you are considered wealthy to the rest of the world. But he does warn those who have money. He says you need to be careful not to depend on the wealth to escape the trials that you find yourself in. Don't depend on your bank account to get you through it. Don't depend on that credit card with that extra high limit to get you through it. Don't depend on it because it's not going to help you in the end. It will only hurt you. Turn to me first. This is why he says in verse 11, for the sun rises with its with scorching heat and withers the grass and its flower falls and its beauty perishes, so also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Be mindful not to trust in everything else, in the finances or the relationship that you have, but turn to Jesus instead. And he says this in verse 12, but blessed is the man or the woman who remains steadfast under trial, not running from it, running to other things to escape it, or running to your money to bail yourself out. For when this person has stood the test, they will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love Him. We want to know what it, looks, what it means to live and look like Jesus. Point three, my last point this morning, is stay faithful in the fire. Stay faithful in the fire. I know this is a word for us today. I know it. The Lord spoke to us this morning in our prayer time. And there were two people, if not three, that said, we're going through something, but we want to stay faithful through the trial. And I said, this is what the Lord is speaking to us as a church this morning. He wants us to stay faithful in the fire. And He'll see us through the fire. Being faithful in the fire is a major part of what it means to look like Jesus and live like Jesus. Jesus, do you not know that he could have not gone to the cross? He could have called tens, thousands of angels to come and defeat all of his enemies in one breath and just decide to set up a kingdom here on earth and live forever. He could have done that. But he didn't run from the fire. He stayed faithful because he knew that the cross was a means for our victory. He stayed faithful. He didn't run from the cross. He embraced it. Knowing 
that it was the means to gain our victory. He was faithful under fire and He won for us the crown of life. And if we remain faithful and steadfast under the trials we face in this life, we will receive that crown of life too. Like I said, and we sang, King Jesus, only crowns are given to those who conquer. Crowns are worn by kings and queens that conquer their enemies. And James is telling us here that the trials that the enemy uses as a way to destroy you is actually the tools that God will use to make you more than conquerors in Christ Jesus. The thing the enemy thought would destroy you is the thing that's going to actually make you a conqueror in Christ. Because you will overcome the trials of life. You will have victory in Jesus. You will. It may not turn out the way you think. It may not work out exactly how you want it. But God will never leave you or forsake you in the fire. He'll walk with you through it. So stay faithful to God in the middle of your trial because it's producing something powerful in your life that will defeat the enemy in your life. I want to remind you that trials are a part of following Jesus. It's a part of life as a follower of Christ. But ask God for wisdom to know what's going on and what you can learn and stay faithful in the fire. If there's anyone who's walking through something right now, God might be using your struggle or your hardship in life to get your attention so you can turn to Him and stop running back and forth to the things that try to give you an escape from your trials.